Hello and welcome to Fans, a podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Berry is writer, author and all-round super shaker, it's James Bentley. James, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. No, delighted to have you on. Um, yeah, to talk about a really well interesting, may, maybe the wrong word, perhaps sad, I should say, um, fan experience. Obviously, there's been lots of highs, but some very big lows for you uh, relatively recently, which we'll, we'll of course get into. And um, I'm really keen to get your thoughts all on what's happened to Berry, obviously, the future, the past, and very much present as well, because uh, there's an interesting sort of um, development in Berry's future with. Uh, with Berry AFC as well, so it'd be really good to um, to talk about all that as well. So we've got loads to get into. Um, the first thing I want to speak to you about is um, kind of the broad take on English football and where we are with it at the moment. Um, so we're recording this a few weeks after all the stuff about Project Big Picture came out, uh, and a few days after there were plans for a European Premier League um, were revealed and, and discussed mainly online it should be said and this is both of these things have led to a discussion about long-term future of English football as we know it and specifically the Premier League Football League pyramid and whether or not it's actually sustainable so as someone who's supported and uh, I don't know what the the right tense to use is supports or supported a club near the bottom of the pyramid for over 30 years and has seen the very worst happen to that club due to issues over finance and economic stability what is your view? Can and should the pyramid survive in its current form? And if so, what needs to be done to ensure that happens? I'm not sure it can survive in its current form. I think if you uh, listen to a podcast like The Price of Football with Kieran Maguire, mm. football's just in a really, really parlous state. And we all said it even before COVID uh, last year, that Berry will just be the first of many. You know, Berry will be the card at the bottom of the house of cards that when you take it away the rest starts to crumble and I think when you look at what's happened to Macclesfield and what's in danger of happening at a number of other clubs I do just think very unfortunately will be the first and I don't think there's a way that the EFL can be sustainable anymore certainly not given what's happened in the past six months. Yeah we should say with Macclesfield um uh, they were expelled from the National League last month, having been wound up by the High Court over debts of £500,000, which when you consider the Premier League collectively spent over a billion pounds on transfers during the last transfer, that just seems absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the thing I'll put to you about it, about the pyramid, is I was listening to um, an Arsenal fan on a, a very good Arsenal podcast called Arsenal Vision. He's, a, he's an American um, Arsenal fan. Um, a guy called Elliot, really, really good talker on football. And he was making the point, and he, they were doing this podcast quite soon after the whole project, big picture thing. And he was making the point that from his point of view, and I think his view is one shared by many overseas fans, the idea of having 92 professional clubs in a country as small as England is just absolutely insane. Um, and especially when, there is, when it's become so uneven over the last sort of 25 years, you know, since the explosion of the Premier League where all the money seems to be sat in that sort of in that top tier among those 20 clubs. And like Berry are one of the satellite towns around Manchester, along with, uh, along, with other, you know, uh, along with other towns like Stockport, Oldham, Rochdale, Bolton. I mean, is the point that it's just not feasible for areas as small as, relatively small as those to have their own football clubs when there are these behemoths on their doorstep like Manchester United, like Manchester City, like Liverpool a little bit further down the road? 
We said since the Premier League explosion of 25 years ago, you know, uh, that is true. But the Football League's been a going concern since 1888. And these clubs were viable for 100 years leading up to that. You know, if you, if you think that the Premier League starting in 1992 was year zero, it's not. The Football League goes back absolutely, yeah. you know, decades and decades and decades. And it was, you know, Bury was a very successful club in the 60s. You know, we were getting crowds of all right crowds were always lower than the big clubs in Manchester United your cities and stuff like that and even further afield Liverpool's and Everton's but the town was able to sustain a football club when money was more sensible money is now not sensible unfortunately you know what you said about that billion pounds that's obscene mm. the money that washes around the top level of the game is absolutely obscene but it's only washing around those echelons because people pay it you know, it's all, it's market demand, isn't it? You know, people will pay what people will pay. And if, you know, uh, fans will shell out a fortune for TV packages or a fortune on season tickets, then it's only in those last 25 years that that has become an issue because before then it wasn't. No, exactly. I mean, that's my point. Is, is it a sense that obviously in the Premier League era, it's become unsustainable? I mean, do you think then there is... And this was one of the aspects of Project Big Picture that was perhaps actually quite a good aspect of uh, a good good aspect of it of what was broadly a really terrible plan. And I, and I say that as a Liverpool fan, as, as a supporter of one of the clubs that was pushing it through, I think it's pretty terrible overall. But there were perhaps certain aspects of it which were good. And for instance, one of those was twenty five percent of all future broadcasting revenues from the Premier League being filtered down the league. Is that then the type of thing you like to see more off a better redistribution of of money in the game from from top down to the other leagues in 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 the pyramid to be honest this is where i fall down a bit on a podcast such as this because i don't really know i've kind of it's something we'll come on to later i'm sure when you talk about the effects of Barry's expulsion on me but Mm. uh, i've not really taken much of an interest in the game as a whole in the past 12 months and things like this now simply don't concern me i think uh you know is should there be a fairer redistribution get my teeth in, redistribution <laughs> of wealth. Yeah. Uh, from the outside looking in, you'd say, yeah, there should be. But to, allow, to have allowed it to get to this point is, you know, it's, it's, it's cliche to say, it's not the game I fell in love with. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of put on the spot here because I've not really developed any or devoted any serious thinking time to it because I haven't got the need to, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, let, let's come on to the reason you haven't got a need to do it. And that is obviously Barry's situation specifically. And let's go back to up and 14 months ago, specifically Tuesday, the 27th of August, 2019. And, and as you said, that was a club being expelled from the English Football League after 125 years participation. Um, quite a complicated story involving two pretty shoddy owners, Steve Dale and Stuart, uh, Stuart Day. And if mm-hmm. I'm right, a £3.7 million loan connected to mortgage on Gig Lane. Um, with your greater level of expertise and obviously emotional link to it all, do you want to really go through what, what happened and how, how Barry got to that point 14 months ago? Yeah, I mean, it all started really on the day that Stuart Day walked into the club in 2013. He came in promising great things. Uh, Barry was a club in a bit of a slump. We'd just been relegated to the bottom tier. But he promised, you know... Uh, it felt to me really like he came into the club and said everything sorry am i am i allowed to swear just asking that yeah go for it absolutely mate <laughs> swear away <laughs> it felt to me like he came into the club in 2013 and he said everything you fans love about this club is shit 
I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it more professional. And so, just quickly, what was his background? Who is he? What's his? uh, Is a businessman, an entrepreneur of some sort? I presume. Those magical two words that any football fans love to see connected with their club: property developer. Oh, there you go. The classic one. The classic. The classic takeover uh, hero. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so uh, yeah. you think has he got one eye on the ground? But anyway, yeah. Yeah, that's by the by. He came in and he said, uh, yeah, everything you love about this club, it seemed to me he was saying, was shit. I'm going to make it better. And uh, yeah, the the wholesale rebirth, I suppose, of Bury East, sorry, as I mean, everything on social media was tagged as the revolution. There was, uh, you know, it was... A, an explosion in marketing, the like of which we'd never seen before. Mm. And uh, he had, came in with a five-year plan of getting to the championship. And, you know, the player turnover in the first, uh, first few months of his time at the club was absolutely incredible. We were signing, you know, dozens of players who would, you know, maybe only play a couple of games and then disappear. Uh, we, we didn't get promoted that season. We got promoted in 2015 from the basement. And then, you know, the five-year plan was well on track. Started training at Manchester City's old training ground in Carrington. Uh, everything became more and more about money, monetized. Sponsored dues, you know, were being introduced where my my personal bugs bear was the player of the season awards. It was always a night when young fans could go with the families, get a picture taken with the players, meet the players. That became a sponsor's do, you know, at £70 a ticket. So it prices out your average Joe in the South Stand. Yeah. Uh, sponsor logos covering every square inch of available space at Gig Lane. Uh, with the seeming, you know, this singular vision to get to the championship. We were signing players like, I don't know if you know, Jermaine Pennant played for Bury. Did he? No, he signed for Bury briefly in 2017. Oh. We're in a relegation battle from the third tier and we signed Jermaine Pennant. Jermaine Pennant is not a player to have on your side when you're in a third tier relegation battle. I will tell you that now. I'm guessing he would have been the highest paid player when he was there by some distance as well. He's not going to play for nothing, is he, Pennant? I'm sure he was, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the accounts just... Your colleague David Collins covered it in such uh, mm. forensic detail, obviously. And when you see that Berry are losing £2.3 million in a financial year, this sets alarm bells ringing. And some fans were you know, very wary of what Stuart Day was promising and how he was going about things. Others said, you know, just enjoy the ride. Uh, as it turned out, you know, they were right to be wary, but we'll come on to that as well, I'm sure. Mm. Uh, yeah, so we... Just avoided relegation by the skin of our teeth in the summer of 2017. Uh, Lee Clark is manager and he goes on a kid in a sweep shop rampage in the summer of 2013. Uh, Some of the sums banded about, we never actually had confirmed as to how much we paid for players. But again, as you say, the wages must have been astronomical. When you see the calibre of cars that's pulling up in the gig lane car park, Mm. where, you know, you may be used to a Fiat Punto, you've got, Audi A7s and stuff like that. Uh, And then we had this squad in the summer of 2017 that was assembled with the intention of getting promoted to the championship. At the end of 2017-18, we were the first club in England to be relegated in any of the top four divisions because they were just a collection of individuals. They weren't in any way a team. They weren't in any way a squad. There was no team spirit. It was an unmitigated disaster. Mm. 
in the winter of 2018, Stuart Day sells the club to Steve Dale for a pound. Steve Dale comes in with grand ideas or grand quotes to the media about you know giving something back to the community. He says he's had leukemia. This is his second chance in life. He really wants to put something back. That didn't extend to paying members of staff or players at Bury. It turned out that he wasn't paying them and it just descended into the absolute nightmare that resulted in the club being expelled from the EFL in August 2019. Despite having got promoted a few months before, uh, those players will go down in legend and I will make sure they go down in legend as the players who rolled their sleeves up and they weren't being paid, but they did what they did for the fans and they were just an incredible bunch. They were the exact antithesis of what Lee Clark put together in the summer of 2017. The 2018-2019 squad were just remarkable. How they dealt with things, they were brilliant. Well, I'll come on to them in a second. Yeah, I do want to ask you a question about that. Just on, just on Steve Dale. So, you, yeah, as you said, my colleague David Conn has, has written extensively on and Barry, done, a, done an amazing job on that. And just one line I've taken from a piece that he wrote about Barry after the expulsion. So he said, this is David Conn writing, Dale never satisfied the league that he had the necessary money to sustain the club, a requirement of EFL rules for new owners before a takeover. I mean, I just find that baffling. Why was he then allowed to take over the club? And, and does that maybe then show why the fit and proper persons test is just utter shite, really? It just does not uh, stand the test of kind of uh, authority and uh, correctness that it should do. Yeah, that's the question you've got to bring up with the EFL. Why did they allow this individual who has got a proven track record of dissolving companies, you know, at least 40 of them, I think, his company's house record shows, why did you allow him to take yeah. over a club? You know why? When when a football club sold for a pound, it should start sell. It should start alarm bells ringing, shouldn't it? Yeah. Some club with 130 odd years of proud history, and it's allowed to be sold for a quid. You know what can you buy for a pound these days? Yeah. <laughs> and my football club that I devoted my life to was allowed to be sold for that. That's yeah. It's. Uh, I think the EFL have got some very well. We've tried to get answers to their very awkward questions of the, you know, ever since the expulsion, and I don't think we've ever really been satisfied by what we've been told. We, I think, we were a scapegoat. We were let down. Yeah, and um, I mean that team you said that got promoted in in 2019 under uh, Ryan Lowe, who I think we'll probably mention a couple of times during this podcast. Um, is it right that there was a feeling among some clubs, and and they lent quite heavily on the EFL to take a hard stance over Berry because they felt. I mean, obviously, you're incredibly proud and uh, off that team and. Of, of what they achieved, winning promotion uh, to League Two. But there was a feeling among some clubs that they'd had an unfair advantage um, over, over themselves, that they were a team that the club couldn't afford to pay. I mean, what's your response to that? Well, my response to that would be that the club, the uh, squad that was assembled, that was punching above its weight financially, was the one that got relegated the season before. Yeah. Ryan Lowe performed absolute miracles with these players who, I mean, I don't know the ins and outs of what they were being paid, but I don't think it was those players that were at the uh, top end of the wages scale. Certainly not. It was the ones from a year before. Mm. No, fair enough. Uh, I mean, let's go to t- the 27th of August, uh, 2019. Must be just a terrible day for you and fellow Berry fans. I've got to just say, uh, on a personal level, I remember it actually very well because I was, um, I was night editing at The Guardian. So that's a shift that involves me coming in at 5pm, working till 1am, basically seeing the paper through to final edition. 
and it's normally only busy on live football nights. So if there's you know Premier League games or Champions League games, otherwise it's relatively quiet. And on that day, I don't think there's any live football. So I, I came into work thinking it'll be a pretty quiet day, quiet evening. I'll uh, you know be able to ride this through pretty comfortably. And I got in, and uh, I was told by my uh, by my boss that. Um, it was actually going to be potentially a very busy night because Berry were almost certainly going to be expelled, uh, expelled from the Football League that night. David Conn was primed to, to write on it and report on it. So it ended up being a really busy night. And, you know, I've got no connection to Berry, but even, you know, just sort of seeing through this, you know, our, our coverage of that, the Guardian's coverage of that story, I felt very sad for, for everyone associated with Berry and sort of sad for English football in a way. You just don't want to see a club. It's, it's had such a long standing relationship and long, a long standing in English football being kicked out in that way. Um, yeah, let me take you back there, James. I'm sure it's a very grim day for you. What, what, just talk, talk me through what happened, where, you, where you were and your emotions on the 27th of August 2019. Well, I think if you roll it back a couple of days, it was the uh, Tuesday after a bank holiday Monday. Mm. And on the Friday, that was when Sky were doing their appalling countdown clock, yeah. you know, uh, the countdown to expulsion with Berry and Bolton. And then last thing on Friday, it emerges that you know, there's a potential saviour in the offing and we just pled for a bit more time. Uh, you know, can we, can these lads have the time to go through the accounts, work out what they need to? And they were granted until 5pm uh, on the Tuesday. Yeah. Now, uh, I went on BBC Breakfast on the Saturday morning and the presenter, I'd spoken to him at gig the night before on the Friday when it was looking like we were going to be expelled. And the presenter said, at gig, I looked like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. On the Saturday morning, I looked a lot brighter, a lot perkier. And yeah, we we genuinely thought, you know, this we've we've been pushed to the very edge. But it's you know uh, somebody coming into the courtroom waving a piece of paper just before the gavel's about to go down, announcing somebody's execution. That's how it felt, and. Uh, that feeling continued over the weekend. I remember going out with my friends and just feeling so relieved, thinking we've been pushed so close, but now we're going to come through it. Everything's going to be okay. And on the Tuesday morning, uh, or on Bank Holiday Monday, it was announced, come down to gig on the Tuesday morning, get the ground ready for the first game of the season. All these games have been postponed so far because of this nonsense, but don't worry, it's all going to go ahead. And I couldn't go, I was working. But I know a number of people who did go, my mum and dad went. Uh, and that morning in the petrol station near where I work, I was buying my lunch for the day and I saw somebody who worked at Berry and I said to him, is everything going to be okay? And he said, yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. It was a glorious sunny day. Uh, I went to work safe in the knowledge that everything was going to be fine, that people were doing this. I was, you know, looking on social media in quiet spots at work, seeing uh, people cleaning the ground, ground looking absolutely fantastic. And then... At about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, you just get the you get a text through takeovers off, and you just think, "Shit, the deadline's in a couple of hours." You know, other st other ridiculous stories started coming through about this Brazilian pastor who'd made a fortune in gold mining, then wanted to take it over, and you just think, "Oh God, no! It can't be! It can't be!" Five o'clock passes, you don't hear anything. The deadline. And then, uh, as you say, you know, if you were on that shift till uh, one o'clock, you'd have, at five past 11, you'd have heard the news that I heard. It came through on Twitter, Barry have been expelled from the EFL, and it was the strongest punch to the gut I've ever had in my life. 
imagine. In so many ways, I don't think I'll ever recover from that, you know, that moment. No matter what happens with AFC or with FC or whatever, that is the moment when you find out that this authority, you know, the authorities are there to look after you, to, you know, support you, to provide for you. And they've kicked you out. And we've sailed close to the wind on a number of times at Bury before. You know, there's been a cash crisis about every 10 years. But this one, something kept happening every time that we'd never experienced before. You know, well, we've had cash crises before. Well, we've never had a game postponed because of them before. And then you reach the next step. Well, we've never had this warning from the EFL before. And it was, yeah, it was uh, just an absolute sucker punch. And I didn't go to work the next day. I phoned my boss. I didn't sleep that Tuesday night. I phoned my boss at seven o'clock on the uh, Wednesday morning, and I just said, "I'm really sorry. I'm. I can go and sit at my desk, but I'm not going to be there. Mm. Is it okay if I don't come in today?" And he said, "It's fine. You know, do what you got to do." And I went down to gig, and I just stood there in the rain and just looked at looked at it. You know, it's it's a bit hard to put into words. I mean, I, I normally find words come better when I'm writing rather than when I'm re, uh, speaking. But when you just think of everything that you've seen there and everything connected with it and all the people that you know and all the great times that you've had, and not even at gig, you know, I was thinking of away games as well. I used to love going to London watching Bury, And you think, well, that's now out of the window as well. And every time you think of something, there's a different angle of it. It's not just, it was a short-sighted move by the EFL because it's not just uh, Bury Football Club that's been punished. It's the area around Bury Football Club. You know, it's the pub landlords, pub landladies. It's the people in who work in shops around the ground. And essentially, you know, the fans have been punished. And the one person who was meant to be punished was Steve Dale. And he just couldn't care less. Mm. As we've seen over the past 12 months, he, he doesn't care about Berry Football Club or its fans. This expulsion to him is no skin off his nose. But to us, it, it was awful. It was, you know, like I say, that real blow, that real punch that you might never actually get over. You're obviously angry with the AFL and understandably so. What do you feel they should have done in that situation? Uh, well, they shouldn't have let Steve Dale take over the club for a start. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but I mean, I don't, I don't know. Again, I try, I've not devoted too much time to thinking about what the EFL should have done because otherwise, I'll, I'll go mad. <laughs> Quite honestly, you can. I might not have slept for the past twelve months thinking about it. You know, they could have, they should have done this, they should have done that. I just, I've chosen to mourn, and I do use that word very deliberately, and grieve with the people who I know feel the same way about me. I've left the anger to other people, to be honest. You said you, you feel you, you write about it better. You certainly wrote a, a beautiful piece for The Guardian, in fact, uh, I think just before the expulsion was confirmed and where you really described the importance of, of Berry to the town and to the people of the town. And I just read a couple of lines from it. You said, um, for you, being a Berry fan was like being a member of a secret society. And when Berry Football Club feels good about itself, Berry feels good about itself. And in that same piece, you told a lovely story about your friend Barry, who died in 2015. Um, yeah. Do, yeah, do you just want to tell that story? Because it, it's really beautiful. And I think it sort of touches on that sense of community that um, that a, a local football club fosters and, and why it's so important. Yeah, there is that sense of community. But I mean, uh, just to, before I say, tell the story about Barry, you know, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not a sole preserve of Barry. 
mm-hmm. every one of these 72 clubs that are outside the uh, Premier League has that level of community attached to them. And, you know, yeah. you recognise the people uh, who go to games, you know, you recognise fans around town and you're like onto them. But uh, Barry was, <laughs> he was a bloody character. I mean, one game before Christmas, he went dressed as a bloody elf. <laughs> also after Christmas and I've still got the photo of him in his phone where he's wearing the bloody elf hat and... I was going to say yeah before Christmas just about okay <laughs> oh, pretty, pretty silly yeah. but uh, yeah he, he died in 2015 and he'd not been well and uh, he died and he was uh, cremated and he wanted his ashes to be interred at gig because mm-hmm. you know that's the kind of thing that you can do at a lower league club and uh, we went we went down there and we uh, there was a little hole dug for him by the side of the pitch, and just the general hubbub of a non-match day at a football ground is always exciting to me because you know it's still that hive of activity that's building up towards the weekend. Mm. And uh, we put his ashes in there. You know, we each grabbed a handful, put them in, and then the rest were put in. And I went home and I said something on the internet about him. I said, uh, my friend Barry Lockley died the other day. Uh, he was a big Barry fan. You might not know him. But if I say to you, he was the bloke who went in the South Stand wearing the big Russian hat, you might know who I mean. And straight away, you got people on this thread on the message board saying, you're right, I don't know him, but I know who you're talking about because of the hat. And that's, we're all recognisable to each other. And that's what I love about it. I sold a copy of my book the other day to uh, a fellow who lived around the corner from my office. And I said, I sent him a message saying, uh, I normally actually walk past your house to go to the post office to send books why don't I just drop it off for you and he said brilliant you know, here's my address da, 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 da. so I went round knocked on his door and straight away I recognised him as somebody I walk past every morning he's walking into Bury. I'm walking out of Bury Town Centre and I knew he was a Bury fan and you know we're on first name terms now and that's that's what I love about it the that sense of community as I say where Another thing I wrote in the Guardian article, you can be walking around the supermarket on a soaking wet Thursday night and you see a Berry fan and you raise your eyebrows in recognition to him, you know, like, you're right, mate. And that gesture says so much about shared experiences, about these things that we all went through together because there's so few of us. And you do feel like you're a member of a secret society. You do know that when you make that gesture, you're saying to that fella, we experienced Dean Kiley saving the penalty at Watford. We experienced Tony Rigby scoring against Preston in the playoff semi-finals. We experienced Danny Mayer scoring at Tranmere. We experienced Tom, Sco- Tom Sauce scoring at Tranmere. We've experienced all these things together. And you know what? Isn't it great? Isn't it better than sitting at home in your armchair paying £14.95 pay-per-view? I've hugged strangers at Berry Games, you know, because the emotion that it draws out of you. Football draws out emotion in everyone. But... To hug a perfect stranger who, all right, you may recognise them, but you don't know the name. And, you know, to stand having a pint with these people in the social club and the players after you got promoted at Chesterfield. So we got promoted at Chesterfield in 2011. We, there was a party in the social club and the players and fans drank together and sang together. And it remains one of the best nights of my life. It was absolutely superb. It's, it's what's given me the confidence to want to write books about Berry because you feel as though you've got that connection with the players. We didn't have that connection in the Lee Clark team that I mentioned before, but we did have it in the Ryan Lowe team. And that's why the Ryan Lowe team will always be really, really special in the history of the club, not just because they were the last team, but because 
they had that bond with the fans. They rolled the sleeves up and they said, right, we'll do it for you. And they did. I mean, you, you've spoken from, you know, your, your own personal way of coping over the past 14 months is, as you said, as you put, put it aptly and beautifully, you know, you're mourning and, you, and you're trying not to focus too much on the anger of, of everything that's happened. How have your fellow fans that you speak to that you're still able to, or you are still in touch with, how are they coping? Well, I mean, this is where the thorny issue of uh, AFC, was it set up too early? comes into play because I've got some friends who are very anti-AFC and I've got some friends who are very pro-AFC and uh, it is a grieving process that means the people, well, I don't want to say it means the people who aren't uh, pro-AFC won't get on board with it because it's, oh, this is such a thorny issue and, you know, you've got to be really careful what you say because you don't want to alienate one set of people or another and uh i do think it's just because we are we are still grieving and you know you can never tell anybody how to grieve it's it's a very personal process and uh not not sure where i want to go with this to be honest um, well, we'll come on to Bury AFC later because um, okay. I do feel it's more to talk about them, and um, there's yeah, just certain specific aspects I want to come on to. But, um, but right yeah. About them. yeah, there's no getting around it. Uh, yeah, just, you know, talking about it carefully. Yeah, no, I see, and we'll, and we'll, we'll do that later because I do think it's important to, to focus on them. And, and you wrote a, a beautiful Twitter thread about about following them and, and why you have decided to follow them. So we'll we'll come on to that later. But just just to go back to to everything that happened last year. I mean, the way you put it is it's really beautiful. And I mean, even as a fan of a, you know, a big club like Liverpool, who hasn't got that incredibly tight-knit sense of community because of how big they've expanded. And obviously, my, like me, myself, being a London-based fan, I can still completely relate to that. And certainly during this COVID period, I'm deeply missing seeing you know, the friends I travel to and feel with and the people I see in the ground and the people I see in the pub beforehand. And, and that, for me, that's the most beautiful aspect of football. It's not necessarily the 90 minutes, although that can obviously be, can be and regularly is amazing. But, you know, it's, the, it's, it's all the stuff around it, isn't it? It's the people you see at the game. It's people you have a pint with. And, and Yeah, I've always said that, that being a Bury fan, you don't get into a Bury fan for the glory. You get into <laughs> it because, you know, it does feel like that secret society. And it's about the thousand different interactions you have on a match day. Absolutely. You know, uh, Dave walks into the club before games, you raise your hand in greeting. The other Dave walks in, you raise your hand in greeting. You know, every crack in every paving slab because, you know, it's a walk you've done for so long. You buy your half-time draw ticket off the same person every game. You know, uh, <laughs> Terry and Paul, who sat behind me, uh, I'd have, you know, a few pints before the game. Terry and Paul would always have a wager what time during the game I'd get up to go to the toilet. <laughs> uh, Terry would say, I reckon it's going to be 15 minutes this week. Paul, oh no, you've blown it there, Terry. Twelve. <laughs> That's really funny you say that because there's a guy who uh, who stands in front of me in the cop at Anfield, and uh, me and my mate who who I've known for years now, we and we stand together uh, at Anfield, and there's a guy in front of us, and every game without fail he'll go for a piss during the first half and we just look at each other and go why isn't he going before kickoff it's just <laughs> but you're one of those people are you Jay? you're one I of those people afraid. who gets out of his seat during the first half for a wee oh bloody hell so how what's the earliest you've ever been for a first half piss oh i think it's probably we're in single figures <laughs> <laughs> amazing super oh no i mean final thing on this and then we'll we'll sort of reminisce and talk about happier things um i just want to kind of link it back to the start and you know, in terms of looking at what happened and, and specifically with, uh, with Stuart Day, I mean, 
I said all the things he was promising and, and his kind of mad ambitions for the club. Do you think that links to that desperate search that a lot of owners of lower league clubs have to get to the Premier League, to get to those riches? And that's essentially the problem. And that's why we do need to redistribute money down the pyramid. I don't know if it's why we need to redistribute it. I think owners just need to be more sensible mm. because Stuart Day came into Bury saying, I'll get you into the championship in five years. Well, nobody asked him to. Yeah. Nobody, nobody said, I demand to be in the championship in five mm. years because we'd skirted, like I say, close to the edge on a number of occasions before. And off the back of that, I think every man Jackaberry fans was just pleased to have a team. You know, I've sat in crowds of less than 2,000 watching Bury. There's a number that's imprinted on my mind, 1,396. And that was the crowd for a game versus Stevenage shortly before Stuart Day came to the club. And I was one of them. And I didn't care what the football was like. I didn't care what the football was like under some of the managers I've seen. I still went. And I, I always went because it was my club. It was my, it's my link to my family. As I also wrote in The Guardian, you know, my great granddad was a prisoner of war in the First World War. He took my dad to games. My dad took me. It's my link to over 100 years of my family history. And it's my link to my town because I'm very proud of where I'm from. And to, for somebody to be chasing the scraps from the Premier League, Stuart Day's justification was, well, when Leeds come over the hills, they'll bring 5,000 fans. I don't care. I'm as happy watching Bury against Torquay United as I am in some of the you know, games when we're in the second tier. Because it's all about that community. It's all about the escape from modern life that football allows you to have. And it, the, the football is largely incidental. I've seen some drops, but I've also seen some fantastic football. And I'll always treasure the fantastic football, but I'll never overtly criticise the drops because they were players wearing a berry shirt and that's more than I've ever done. But at the same time, it's quite often all I've ever wanted to do. You know, you still daydream, even at nearly 40 years old, mm-hmm. about banging the winner in and you know, the way Tony Rigby did in uh, 1995 in the playoff semi-final. So, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't think there should be, a, again, being put on the spot, I don't think per se there should be a redistribution of wealth but just more realistic ambitions because a lot of fans will just be happy to support their club off the back of something like happened to Barry happened. I think they will have looked at us as a very cautionary tale. And uh, in these times, in these really weird times, uh, they may be worried about the future of the clubs and they just want a future. The end of Barry Football Club feels like a bereavement for some fans. After 134 years in the Football League, it's all over. Tied up with it, decades of memories, victories, defeats, even marriage proposals. It's just everything you do, you know. I got engaged over there to my fiance. It's just, it is. I just, yeah, I've just lost the words now. Just absolutely devastated. Football is corrupt, and that's it. It's not, it's not family. It's business. It's just money. That's all they want. The venues that we have in Bury, like pubs and chippies and whatnot, they're making money. The community of Bury is making money just by us playing here every second Saturday. So that in itself is going to suffer by us being kicked out of the league. The day had begun, hopefully. Hundreds of volunteers preparing the stadium for what they thought would be Bury's first home game of the season on Saturday. Owner Stephen Dale had bought the club for £1. And he'd been set to sell it to CNN Sporting Risk. But with just hours until the EFL deadline, the deal collapsed. 
just last season, Bury were promoted to League One. Now they become the first FA Cup winning team to be expelled from the Football League. Right, let's, let's go back. Let's reminisce a bit. Let's talk about happy memories. Let's um, yeah, indeed. So let's, talk, let's go right back to the very start. Your first Bury game, 27th of August, 1988. Bury 3, Wolves 1. Opening game of the 88-89 Division 3 season. And as you pointed out to me, a very poignant date. 31 years exactly from the club being expelled from the Football League. Um, and as you also um, told me, a couple of interesting facts from that game. Uh, it kicked off at 11am. Mm -hmm. Early, I'd say, because uh, Wolves fans had caused trouble at Scarborough on the opening day of the previous season. And also, when Jamie Hoyland scored Berry's first goal, it was the first goal scored in the 88-89 league season anywhere in the country. Uh, so just how quick was it? Uh, I think it was 17 minutes in. So that's quite late for an early goal for, for the entire yeah, season. Well, no other game kicked off for, until three o'clock. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, of course. A goal in the 90th minute would have probably could have, could have been. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Uh, how old were you on that day, on the 27th of August, 88? I was seven years old. Seven. Okay, so quite young. I was trying, yeah, we've had a lot of people on this, on this podcast who've gone to their first game. I mean, I went to my first football game when I was 11. I always imagine going sort of in, in single digit years. You probably can't remember much. I mean, do you have any memories from that day? Uh, I remember the bag of sweets I was given. Yeah. I remember being told, sit on the crash barrier, don't talk, or, you know, don't move, <laughs> don't, don't go off wandering. Yeah. Uh, and considering that, you know, the game kicked off because of worries about crowd trouble, I'm, I mean, I'm still amazed, really. I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of football in the mid-80s and hooliganism, etc. And I'm, I'm amazed I was allowed to go, with, even with my dad. I'm, a, I'm amazed that my mum and dad thought, yeah, it'll be fine, go on to that. Because I think seven is probably the right kind of age. You know, you, you hear kids being taken to games when they're two, and it's, it's too young, isn't it? They don't really know what's going on. But I think when you're seven, your sight, you know, your senses are more open to things like that. I can still remember the roller skating rink in Bury from that kind of time. Mm. And uh, I think you're, you're developing more of an understanding in the world. And I do think it's... Looking back, it's probably the ideal kind of age, no matter what was happening in the British game, because crowds weren't massive at Bury, you know, so crowd trouble may not have been such a consideration. Uh, the safety of the ground post-Bradford was definitely a consideration, but uh, that's another story entirely. But I think, looking back, seven's the right kind of age. And I look at my membership card, which I carry around with me in my wallet at all times from the 88-89 season, and I can recognise the boy sitting in that, photo, uh, you know, pictured in that photo, who wobbly wrote his name when he was asked to provide his signature. All I did was write my name in my uh, seven-year-old handwriting, and I can, yeah, I can recognise that boy, and I can recognise that uh, it it took a while for the enormity of what being a Barry fan would be to sink in. You know, it took maybe a couple of years, but when it did, there was no turning back. Was that also your first visit to Gig Lane as well, that game? Uh, no, my first visit to Gig, I wrote about this in uh, my first book, The Forgotten 15. My first visit to Gig was when we went to collect our season tickets, me and my dad, in the summer of 1988. And kids' season tickets back then were only £10. And I think my dad just took a punt on one thinking, if he likes it, he likes it. If he doesn't, he doesn't. But, you know, it's only a tenner wasted. I actually checked out the other day uh, with inflation that £10 season ticket would still now only be £23.10p, which, uh, you know, it shows what a relatively inexpensive uh, experiment it was. Yeah, yeah. But we went down there to collect them, and while we were there, 
we bumped into Wilf McGuinness, who was Barry's physio at the time. Now, he, of course, took over from Matt Busby as Manchester United manager. Mm. He was the last uh, Busby babe. Or he was he the last? I can't remember. But he was certainly, uh, yeah, he, he was at United at the time of the Munich Air disaster. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a massive thing. You think, if you think of other famous Manchester United managers, Louis van Gaal, will Louis van Gaal be physio of a lower league team in 15 years' time? I don't think he will be. Would be amazing if he was, though, wouldn't it? That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I'll start following that team just to see Louis coming on the pitch with, a, with, a, yeah, with his physio kit. That'd be incredible. With a magic sponge. Yeah, yeah exactly. Wolf <laughs> McGuinness. Wolf McGuinness was former manager of Manchester United and he was very yeah. physical. And uh, my dad introduced me to him and Wolf took me by the hand and he gave me a guided tour of the ground. And oh, he wow. you know, introduced me to players when they passed, made sure they had a quick chat with us. He showed me around and it was an act that only took 15 minutes out of his day. Mm. But I do believe that on the back of that, there was never going to be any other team for me than Bury. You know, I can't have my head turned by... Liverpool as it would have been in the late 80s when they were the all-conquering team because I'd had this introduction from Wilf and I think it harks back to a phrase I once heard that with some fans they don't choose their club their club chooses them mm. and I think Wilf made sure that Berry chose me. Yeah. Do you think meeting Wilf then was as important to you being a Berry fan as, as going to that first game and, and seeing Berry win on that first game as well? Uh, I don't think Berry winning in that first game was particularly important because no. i I don't really remember as much about it as I probably should. You know, I've got the goals on uh, VHS that I had transferred mm. to DVD. But I do think Wilf is as important a figure in my history of being a Berry fan as my dad is, certainly, yeah. Because I think with that guided tour, with the way he interacted with the younger fans, he was brilliant. Mm. You know, uh, for 10 years he was at Berry. I went to his testimonial. He played the FA Cup uh, United winning team in 1990. And... He was, he was loved universally by both sets of fans. And when I interviewed him for the book, I bought him a drink to say thank you, essentially. You know, we met at a pub in South Manchester and uh, I was able to buy him a pint and that really meant a lot to me, being able to do that. I can imagine. Did, did he remember meeting you? No, he didn't. No, no I was no. going to say, probably met so many kids. Yeah, probably did. Um, I've never been to Gig Lane. One of, uh, well, quite a few grounds, if anyone haven't been to. I've been to quite a few lower league uh, grounds, but I've not been to Gig Lane. Do you want to describe it to me and the listeners, just kind of the ground itself, but also maybe the geography around it? Where is it in Bury? Uh, well, I'm actually sitting in the uh, spare room at home now, and I'm looking on the bookshelf at Football Grounds of Great Britain by mm. Simon Inglis. Oh, sorry, the Football Grounds of England and Wales. Uh, and it was first published in about 1983. And in it, he refers to Gig Lane as being the most attractive in the north, most attractive ground in the northwest. And he's got a really good point because it's absolutely beautiful. It's proper, you know, it's from a time when a ground was a focal point of the community. It's in the middle of a load of terraced houses. Mm. Uh, the South Stand side has got massive trees growing over the top of it. There's Starkey's Wood at the back of the Manchester Road end. Uh, there's I think it's the only, it was the only ground in the 92 where access was from one side, and that was Gig Lane. And uh, it was all wood back when I first went. As I said, you know, uh, post-Bradford, that was a consideration. Yeah. But after the Taylor report on the Popperwell inquiry, we were able to uh, redevelop it. And it actually went on to host England under-18 games in the 90s. Okay. And uh, I saw Michael Owen play for England there. Oh, and it was, uh, it's... 
you know, everyone's biased about their ground, but I do really think that Gig was a proper old school football ground that didn't lose anything when it got redeveloped. It didn't lose its soul. And, uh, you know, sitting in seat V152 in the South Stand when I was a teenager, watching the Great Berry team, and then uh, sitting in seat J15 in the main stand with my dad from 2010 to the expulsion. Uh, it was just that thing in life that I look forward to more than anything else. And there's, I'm so glad that in the age of social media and smartphones that I took so many pictures of the ground just to, you know, illustrate a pithy tweet or something on a Tuesday night game against Doncaster take a picture of the ground to illustrate, oh God, look at this, I'm here again, because I've got those memories now. And I'm so pleased that I've got them. Just uh, snapshots of a ground in time that it had its problems. You know, there was leaky main stand roof. The, stand, the main stand always looked terrible on TV because it was very top heavy. And uh, the hospitality sections where me and my dad used to go, the 1885 suite, uh, looked like you know porter cabins bolted onto the front of the main stand, but I didn't care because it was mine. It was ours, and we loved it. Every Berry fan has got their own special memories of the place, just like every fan has got memories of their own ground. But uh, yeah, it's it's just been pulled sharply into focus with what's happened over the past fourteen months, as you say. Absolutely, yeah. I think there is something about this, those grounds in the northwest, in particular, where where they, where they are often located. The, the classic traditional grounds were located around terrace housing. I think Main Road was 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 like that, and and I've been to Edgley Park Stockport's ground. I think that might be like that as well. And it's just something beautiful when you've got those grounds based around those beautiful, I said, classic terrace housing as well. Yeah, Lowry um, painted it, yeah. Yeah, it's, isn't it just like that? It's like a Lowry painting. I mean, one ground I love is it is Turf Moor, for instance. When you go sort of the press box at uh, Turf Moor is at right at the top of, I think it might be the main stand, and you look over the top and you've, you've, you've walked around these, I say, classic sort of northwest, uh, beautiful sort of traditional terrace housing, but then you look over the top of that stand and, uh, you know, you've got these rolling hills on the other side as well. As I said, it's, it's those grounds in northwest, there's something so evocative about them. They do look like, as you said, like a Lowry painting. They're absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, have you got standout memories of any of any particular games or any just sort of moments at Gig Lane? Uh, one that I've mentioned uh, previously and you know when I come back to on a Friday now and I've, I've had a few beers and you know I've gone to the yeah. internet to look at highlights it's uh, Preston at home in the playoffs uh, in the 94-95 season we played Preston away and they battered us 5-0 uh, somebody was playing for them it was this lad on loan from Manchester United I think his name was David Beckham oh was that during that period was it okay yeah he, uh, he dominated the game but also uh, David Moyes scored for Preston as well <laughs> wow. afternoon. and they absolutely thrashed us but it came right in the middle of a really good run that we were on you know we'd uh, started the season great fallen away a bit but then we surged back into it and then this happened in the middle of it but we ended up making the playoffs to play Preston and uh, we went to Deepdale in the first leg, won 1-0, played well. David Pugh scored uh, a good goal, got us a 1-0 lead, which is actually the first goal we'd ever scored in open play in the playoffs because we'd had a wretched record in them in 89-90, and 92-93. And uh, for the first time, we were going into a second leg in the driving seat and Preston threw everything out us at gig that night. The pitch was appalling because... It had been used to host the Lacrosse World Cup the previous summer, which, uh, you know, one of Barry's money-making schemes, you know, will host the Lacrosse World Cup. <laughs> Why did uh, the Lacrosse World Cup? Tell me, at least tell me it was England. Uh, no, I think America won it. Oh, 
there's footage of that on gig and you watch the pitch there's footage of that on youtube sorry you watch the pitch being churned up and you think oh. Oh, christ almighty we've got to play football on that for nine months what a mad decision that is <laughs> but anyway yeah anyway yeah we're playing preston they're absolutely battering us throwing everything at us gary kelly makes the best save he ever made in a berry shirt and then on 88 minutes john paskin gets the ball on the halfway line he clips it forward to tony rigby rigby knocks the ball past two tackles and on the D at the Manny Road end, he hits it and it, it's flying, it's flying, it's flying and it dips over the keeper at just the crucial moment and it's comfortably my favourite ever goal by a Berry player of all time. I must have watched it a thousand times and you know I know the commentary word for word. I know even the rhythm of the commentator's voice. I know when his voice is going to go up when it's going to go, going to go down. Yeah. And uh, I was 14 years old that night, stood on the cemetery end which is, uh, that's another thing about Gig, one of the best ever end names for Cemetery End. Cemetery End, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. And, uh, yeah, I was 14 years old that night and I'd, football rarely made me feel as happy as that being a Perry fan because a lot of it was shit, but on nights like that, it was absolutely brilliant. And uh, yeah, Tony Rigby, well, you, you've asked me for my uh, favourite 11, you'll notice Tony Rigby isn't in it and I'll come to the reason why he isn't. But, He's got a two-line Wikipedia entry. The stuff I saw him do with the football will stay with me forever. And uh, that deep and abiding love for that era at Bury, you know, from 95 through to 98, which I wrote my second book about, uh, meant the world to me. And the players meant the world to me. And the, the board of directors were approachable. They were Bury fans themselves. And... It was just such a special, special time to be a fan. And I was a teenager right in the middle of it. You know, it was the years when your club really, really gets the claws into you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I totally, uh, yeah, I totally sympathise with that view. I think a teenager is always the best years being a football fan. And we will come on to your, yeah, your very all-time 11 later. And we will come on to that mid-90s period specifically as well. Um, mm. Before we do that, it could, just a couple of things, actually. Was it, uh, was it pretty obvious to you then watching David Beckham when he would have been, what, maybe as a teenager, maybe late teens, early 20s, that like he was... He was a standout player that he was a few levels above. Yeah, I think I think we all knew that afternoon yeah. that you know this lad will go on to do something at yeah. Manchester United. I certainly didn't expect him to become a worldwide icon, but he did. You know, uh, Preston was still playing in front of three wooden stands themselves that afternoon, and uh, I don't think any of us thought we were witnessing the birth of Brand Beckham. Definitely not. Yeah. And would would Preston be a big rivals of Berry? Who are Berry's big rivals? Uh, I actually said this in an email to somebody today. You know that Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett and John Cleese sketch? I look up at him, but yeah, I look down yeah, at him. Absolutely classic, if, yeah. If you picture John Cleese as being Bolton Wanderers, <laughs> okay. if you picture Ronnie Barker as being Bury and Ronnie Corbett as being Rochdale. So Rochdale look up at us, but we look up at Bolton. For us, it was always about Bolton. Well, that leads me on to my next uh, thing I wanted to talk to you about. So um, I was going to ask you about your standout away days following Berry. You did say you enjoyed, uh, you enjoyed watching them play away. And you, you put a tweet out relatively recently about uh, seeing, them win, seeing Berry win at Bolton in the League Cup in October 2002. Sounds like quite an interesting story. Involves Keith's fried chicken. Do you want to tell yeah. that? <laughs> yes. Uh, I've just moved to Preston when, when I went to university, in fact, uh, scene of the 5-0 drubbing. I ended up going to university there. But we were drawn against Bolton in the League Cup, second round. Bolton at the time were in the Premier League, managed by Sam Allardyce. Barry were in the basement, uh, just been relegated to the fourth tier the previous May. 
and uh, we went there and we beat them 1-0 and it was absolutely it was glorious it was a horrible night a really squally drizzly night and uh, yeah after I got to the game late because the train at Preston failed and I had to get on the next one along so it meant I didn't get to have a drink before the game or anything like that I ran from Horwich Parkway station where the Berry fan I'd just met on the train uh, shouting to a steward which way is the away end mate and he pointed us in the direction me and this lad who as I say I'd never met before that night uh, sat watching the game together with uh, the goal Bernard Mendion goal from a John Newby cross was uh, it was scruffy but don't care it went in the back of the Bolton net and we won 1-0 back to Horwich Parkway station there's a Bolton loudmouth on the platform oh, I don't care about this it's only the League Cup and I had a proper toe-to-toe argument with him I was saying, you don't care about the League Cup. You've come out on a night like this when you could have stayed at home watching the bill and you've come to watch it. You've done it because you care, mate, and you care that we beat you. Uh, I was probably (laughs) a bit aggressive, maybe, but uh, not physically with it. But yeah, I went back to uh, Preston with my new best friend, my new Berry mate. We went to a couple of student bars, got the DJ to give a shout-out to Berry. Me and... (laughs) Me and Matt, who's now a good mate, you know, uh, we talk occasionally and we always hark back to this night. Uh, we, he knew that was the first year at Preston. He was in his third year. And he said, have you been to Keith's yet? And I said, uh, no, what's Keith's? He said, it's a fried chicken place, but there's a little edge to it. And that little edge was that Keith is Franz Carr's dad. Bloody Franz Carr, God. who yeah. played in the top flight, was born in Preston. And his dad ran a takeaway in uh, Preston, which he played for Sampdoria, didn't he? Franz guy played for Forest, I remember. Then he had a, he had a year at Sampdoria in the mid nineties when I remember Gazetta was on Football Italia in, on the telly. Car <laughs> played for Sampdoria, and his dad runs a fried chicken shop in Preston. Absolutely amazing. Hawaiian fried chicken. What's different about Hawaiian fried wow. chicken compared to Kentucky? I do not know, but <laughs> it tasted like food of the gods that night. And uh, the hangover next day was crippling, but worth it. That sounds like. The greatest night of your life. You've seen your team <laughs> win at your biggest rivals, uh, who at that time, as you say, were in the Premier League, pretty decent team under Sam Allardyce. You then had a few beers. You've got the DJ to give a shout out to Berry, and then you've had chicken at Franz Carl's dad's place. <laughs> that, that's got to live long in the memory, James. That night, it certainly has done. Yeah, it's uh, all one of the fair of supporting Berry. Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's talk about Berry a bit more broadly then. So, um, I think you referenced this earlier. Founded in 1885. Mm-hmm. Uh, fixture in the first division for the first 10 years of the 20th century won the FA yeah. Cup twice in that time as well 1900 and 1903 and that latter uh, success was via a 6-0 victory over Derby in the final which remains a record scoreline for an FA Cup final Matt, unfortunately it's a joint record now because it's well I was gonna yeah, yeah exactly sadly matched by Manchester City in 2019 every, every Berry fan was watching that cup final City Watford thinking don't you dare City don't you oh, really? dare if they'd have made it seven, I'd have, oh, I can't begin to tell you how distraught it'd be. Oh, I never thought of that. Yeah, you'd have been watching that game hoping, okay, five is fine. Stop it, five. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, it was a very grim game, that one, wasn't it? I mean, I, I think I watched it up to 2 0 and then turned off because it was just like, this is just ridiculously lopsided. But there you go. Um, well, anyway, it's still a joint record. That's not terrible. You've still got, you've got, you've got something there still. As I said, didn't go to seven. That's the main thing. Um, yeah, so carrying on this little journey, relegated to Barry, relegated from the first division in 1912, and then largely existed at the top flight since. And during your early years sporting the club, um, from what I can tell, correct me if I'm wrong, mainly in Division 3, the old Division 3, which mm-hmm. makes the reign of Stan Turner in the mid-90s incredibly special. So special, in fact, as you touched on, you wrote a book about it. 
things mm-hmm. can only get better. Berry's mid nineties rise, understand Turner. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll lean back and let you uh, wax lyrical about that period, James. Why was this? I'm guessing the best period of your life supporting Berry. Yeah, it begins that night against uh, Preston in the playoffs, and then it just goes on to take in. We lost at Wembley in the playoff final, but the following season we got promoted. Last gasp. 15 years old to experience my first promotion as a Berry fan, so it had taken seven years to come. But it was worth it in the end. We had a great squad of players. We had a great squad of approachable players. And then the following season, we got promoted again. So two consecutive championships, uh, sorry, two consecutive promotions and won the championship in the uh, second of those to take us up to the second tier and playing teams like Manchester City, Nottingham Forest, uh, who else would you say? Norwich, Ipswich, you know, clubs that you'd been watching a match of the day. We're now coming down to Berry. Emerson played at Berry for Middlesbrough. And I'll always maintain that uh, it's that afternoon when we played Middlesbrough down at gig that forced Emerson to leave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Just adding up. What the hell am I doing here? It's hitting down. It's freezing. I could be on the Copacabana. Every time I get the ball, Lenny John Rose is biting at my ankles. What am I doing with my life here? Oh, brilliant. It must be the thrill for you, though, seeing. What, what, uh, I mean, Ravinelli's got at that stage, hasn't he? I guess Juninho, he's probably gone as well, isn't he? Yeah, they've both gone, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Beck scored that night, uh, that afternoon, and uh, it was a good goal, but Paul Merson was just streets ahead of oh, Berry that afternoon. And I'll always remember going, walking down Manchester Road to the game, and I saw the Middlesbrough team coach, and it had blacked-out windows, but I could make out Paul Merson. And he was another one sitting there, his glumly, his glum face resting on his palm, looking out the window <laughs> at Berry. And he must have been thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> Come on, Merce, get it sorted. Well, he was there for the money. I mean, he's admitted he joined Middlesbrough for the money. He's, he's, he's openly admitted that. So you read what you sell, I guess, in that sense. But I mean, he was a brilliant player as well, Paul Merce. He spent four and a half million pounds on him that close season. And I think the most we spent that close season was something like 40,000. Mm. That was the disparity even then between the haves and the have-nots. But we had the team spirit that got us through it because we stayed up that season. We stayed up and Manchester City went down to the third tier. So that's the, that's the 97-98 season, if I'm not mistaken. That's the season you've stayed up. And as you said, this is the second tier of English football. So the older Division 1, as it was called then, or the first division. And yeah, in that season, 97-98, um, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it didn't start great. But then you won seven of your final 16 league games to, to secure survival. So, I mean, that's got to be an incredible period within an incredible period, that, that run of seven wins in 16 games. Yeah, it was because uh, we did look dead and buried at one point. You know, uh, I remember Boxing Day, we drew away at Tranmere Roves in what was probably one of the most turgid games of football I've ever seen in my life. And every other team who got promoted with us up to the second tier, crew were doing well, Stockport were doing fantastically well. And we'd been the champions in the third tier the season before, yet we were struggling. And you were kind of resigned thinking, oh, well, you know, it's been, it's been nice while it's lasted. We've played City, we beat Nottingham Forest down at Gig. But then, yeah, as you say, we went on that fantastic run and uh, we capped it off with winning at QPR on the last day. In that run of seven wins in 16 games, one of those wins was beating Man City at Main Road 1-0, a famous win. Paul Butler's header. Um, Obvious question, were you there? I was indeed. And I was there to watch a Manchester City fan decide enough was enough and he ran out of the Kipax and tore his season ticket up on the pitch. 
Well, this is a story Stan Turner's told, uh, reflecting that game. And yeah, yeah, as you say, a City fan ran on the pitch through season tickets to the home dugout and shouted, this is ridiculous, it's only Little Berry. Um, yeah. Which uh, is pretty funny. But uh, yeah, that must have been incredible. Incredible to see your team beat Man City at Main Road. At that time, OK, they're not the City they are now, but they're still a, a big name, a big club in English football. They were the biggest club in the division in terms of support, without question. And, uh, you know, they had such a weight of expectation under Franny Lee as chairman. Um, they'd spent three and a half million pounds that summer on Lee Bradbury, mm. you know, which was, again, a phenomenal sum of money that Berry couldn't compete with. But they were a club on the downer and we were, you know, we were like the uh, little terriers yapping on a leash. And just the team spirit that that team had was I remember being 17 years old thinking, I want to write about this team. You know, in years to come, I want to tell this team's story. Mm. And because they were so important to me, it was such a privilege to do it. Fantastic. What about Turner himself? I mean, he only stayed at the club for three years, 95 to 98. He went to Burnley, if I'm right. Was, was that a case of bigger club poaching him or were there other reasons he didn't stay for particularly long? Uh, bigger club and also a club he had an emotional attachment mm. with. He started yeah. his career there and I think it was, as soon as... Uh, Chris Waddle was manager at Burnley in 97-98 and as soon as he was sacked when they only just stayed up on the last day of the season there was only ever going to be one place that Stan was going to be starting the next season and it wasn't Bury. Yeah, did you ever get to yeah. meet Stan? Yeah, I interviewed him for the book and uh, I don't think he really wanted to be interviewed to be honest but uh, I'm grateful that he gave me some time and he gave me some good quotes and I was able to say to him you know, your team was really important to me yeah, and that's it is incredible. As I said, to, if you think where we are now with Berry, sadly, and the fact that at one stage you're in the second tier of English football, beating teams like as I said, Man City at Main Road. Um, I mean, does that does that automatically make Stan Turner the greatest manager in Berry's history as well? Um, I think probably. You know, if we're going off results, he wasn't always particularly popular with the fans. Okay, uh, but Berry fans are quite demanding. I think probably the most popular will be Ryan Lowe for what he did in the final season of the uh, club's history, or at least the final season in the EFL, because uh, not only did he get them promoted, he got them promoted playing some incredibly attractive football as well. Yeah, well, we'll come. Yeah, we'll come on to them then. So just just kind of wrap up on that that period. And so yeah, just as, as I said, Berry, or as you said, Berry um, spent two seasons in Division One, ninety seven to 99 got relegated from the old First Division in nineteen ninety nine. And then basically you bounced between the bottom, you bounced between the two divisions ever since. Um, there was administration in 2002, which I'm guessing may have been the low of, of, of the post Stan Turner per, uh, period. But the high, it does feel like, and uh, you said it pretty much there, was promotion to League One under Ryan Lowe in 2018, 2019. Yeah, do you just want to talk about that? Because it sounds like, as I said, the incredible high of getting promoted, but it wasn't just that you got promoted, it was that you played fantastic football under... I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, a bit of a club legend. I mean, Lowe played for, for Berry for two seasons as well and scored a lot of goals for you. Yeah, uh, I'd say Ryan Lowe is justifiably a club legend. He mm. scored the goal that got Berry promoted in 2011 as well at yeah. Chesterfield. Uh, again, that was a game, that was a run of results against all odds, six consecutive wins. And then uh, you go to Chesterfield on Bank Holiday Monday, Easter Monday. They're top, we're second, we needed to win to get promoted. We won 3-2 and who popped up with the third goal on the 87th minute? It's Ryan Lowe. He made no secret of the fact he wanted to be a manager. Uh, he was caretaker manager in 2017-18 after Lee Clark got sacked. And he actually presided over what I consider to be the worst result in the club's history. 
which was when we lost 3-0 at home to Woking in the FA Cup, in the FA Cup first round in November 2017. But he... Uh, he got the job again in the summer of 2018 permanently and he showed everybody. We played some, the tempo with which we played, you know, there were some tweets knocking about showing passages of play that were comparable with Guardiola's Man City and yet it was, you know, it was buried against Cheltenham or something like that. Yeah, the football we played was just phenomenal and it was a joy to watch and it, his spirit was best epitomised by a game against MK Dons in January 2019. We were losing 3-1 with 18 minutes to go, and we won 4-3. When I'm 80 years old, when I'm a prisoner in my own degenerating mind and body, I will be talking about that game to the fellow next to me in the nursing home because it was the fighting spirit, the quality of the play. It was just amazing. And it was a real privilege to watch it, and Ryan Lowe brought that out of his players. See, as you say, not just quality football, winning football, and um, and uh, you touched on this earlier. All happening while the players aren't getting weren't getting paid as well. I mean, just absolutely extraordinary season that. Yeah, um, I certainly don't think there will ever be another season like it in at many other football clubs yeah. because it wasn't just the uh, you know to play fantastic football. We've all seen that, but to do it against a backdrop of the club being in such turmoil as well. Uh, and as I say, I think that formed a real bond between the players and the supporters. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let, let's let's fast forward then to the present day and, and, and touch on a topic which, as you say, is a very difficult one, is, is Berry AFC. So they're the Phoenix clubs that have risen from, from uh, Berry's expulsion from the Football League. They were formed this August, a couple of months ago then, uh, thanks to the work of 300 volunteers. And they've secured a place in the Northwest Counties League, First Division North, which is the 10th level of the pyramid, managed by the former Sunderland Leicester winger Andy Welsh, uh, completely fan-owned. But, uh, but as you say, they, they've split opinion. There's this sort of idea of new Berry versus old Berry, and this feeling amongst some Berry fans that a new club shouldn't be formed while the old one technically still exists. Berry haven't been liquidated, the original Berry, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Forever Berry, which is a Berry FC Sports Trust, is uh, themselves a continuing search for a buyer to replace uh, Dale and remain intent on persevering with their club at Gig Lane. Um, but you've got fully behind Berry AFC, and as, and as I said earlier, you wrote a lovely thread about your reasons for this on Twitter earlier this month. One line that really grabbed me, uh, James, was you said, we've got something back in our lives that was wrenched from us uh, through no fault of our own. Um, yeah, do you just want to talk about your feelings regarding Berry AFC and, and why you decided to follow them and your experience of following them? Yeah, it was uh, quite a torturous route to get there. I mean... As I say, I think it stages of grief and I think the volunteers who did what they did have done a remarkable job because they were pragmatic enough to accept that the original club was gone. Uh, it may not be liquidated, as you say, but to all intents and purposes, you know, the amount of money that's been asked for what is not a going concern uh, made it, makes it, to me, an unviable prospect. Uh, they came to that conclusion quicker than I did and they grasped the nettle and did what had to be done to form a football club. I dealt with my grief in a different way. I wasn't sure I still liked football. I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to get on board with it. And as it was, uh, I know a lot of really, really good people who were involved with uh, AFC and I kind of, I was led by them a bit. I kind of trusted their instincts and I sponsored a play. Well, I sponsored a shirt of a player. My dad and I. Uh, I started trying to take an interest, 
in the friendlies wasn't always easy because at the end of the day, you know, you've no emotional investment in these players like you have with players who, you know, you've watched play for your club for years or players who you watch playing for other clubs and thought, well, it'd be good if we signed him. And then you do sign them and you know something about them. Everything was, you know, very much an unknown quantity. And the world being as it is at the moment made it difficult to go and watch them. You know, uh, friendly crowds were restricted to 300. Uh, I watched the first game on live stream, the uh, West Didsbury and Charlton, whatever it, whatever they called, in the uh, FA Vars. Watched it on live stream. Surprised myself a few times by shouting, come on, Barry. I'll freely admit that... Uh, you know, it was more of an impulse rather than a concerted effort to say that this was now my team. But the day before the first league game against Steeton, uh, Paul, who sat behind me and my dad, at Barry, I mentioned him earlier about him and his dad, Terry, having a wager about when I'd need to go to the toilet. Uh, he rang me and said, I've got a couple of spare tickets for tomorrow. Dad can't make it. Cousin can't make it. Do you want to go? And I said, yeah. So I thought I'd see what, what it was like in person. And uh, straight away from getting to Ratcliffe's Newven Stadium that Saturday afternoon, it felt like we were home. You know, it felt like a continuation. And it didn't feel like that initially because it was going to, the, to watch a football match. It felt like it because it was the people that I saw when my QR code got scanned at the turnstile. There's Anne who's a steward. I know Anne from uh, Berry. She's one of the volunteers. There's Mike. He's a steward. There's Dave. And that's what, that's how I've come to think about AFC. They're my team because of the other people who, uh, who make it. And it's those people that I used to see at Berry every week and they've bought into this vision. They believe in this vision. And, you know, I, I still love the old club with everything I've got. I think, as I said, pragmatically speaking, the volunteers thought that the old club couldn't be resurrected. And I think reluctantly, I've now come to that conclusion myself. And I don't say that lightly because, like I say, we all loved it. And again, at the Steeton game, found myself shouting, come on, Barry. But it was more real because... You're watching it in the flesh now, you know, rather than a bunch of pixels on a live stream. And I feel privileged and lucky that I was able to be there to watch it because when you get a, a stoppage time corner in the 94th minute or whatever it was, and you see players in white shirts jogging up for it, it that's when it, you know, it really started to feel like it it mattered and that it was my team. And I know there'll be people listening to this who are anti-AFC who will be criticising me for this viewpoint, but it's just how I felt. And, you know, I, I don't want to upset any fellow Berry fan who cheered alongside me when we got promoted in 2011 or when we got promoted in 2015 or whatever. Any of the great nights being a Berry fan. I don't, you know, I don't want to upset those people but it's just what I felt. And I don't know, I don't think FC can be saved. Uh, I'm not going to criticise Forever Berry for starting their campaign to try and raise the money. You know, if they think it can be saved, fair play to them. But I'm not in that camp now. But I don't think it makes us any less of Berry fans 
to chuck your hat into the AFC ring. And I'm, you know, these are like free-form thoughts. As I say, I I tend to write much better than I speak sometimes. But the split in the fan base has really, really upset me because it wasn't a big fan base to start off with. But to divide it through the actions of none of us, you know, the club has, the club has found itself where it is, not through any of our actions. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking, really. Well, I mean, to, to repeat the point again, you speak, you speak as well as you write, James, so don't worry about that. You're speaking absolutely uh, incredibly powerfully and moving about this topic. And as an outsider, I, 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 th- I can see both sides. I think it's an incredibly emotive and difficult subject. I can see the, the side of Forever Berry and those who feel they want to keep fighting for the original Berry, but I can absolutely see your point as well because there has to be a realistic stance on this, um, on the fact that the original Berry may, may never come back again. And I think what the AFC Berry experience, the way you describe it, sounds like to me is, again, hits on that point. A football club is not just the 11 players on the pitch and all the manager and the staff in the dugout. It's the community around it. It's the people who help out at that club, who work at that club, and the fans you, you, you share that experience with your fellow fans. And so if you're seeing those same people stood next to you watching a new team, then I'm not saying it's exactly the same as watching the original Berry. Of course it isn't, but I, I totally get it. It's... You're transferring some of that across, aren't you? So you're feeling those same emotions again, or you can feel those same emotions that, that you did feel for, for the Berry sport when you know when you went down to that game in '88. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, as I say, I get so upset by it because it wasn't our fault. I, my dad said something that that day. Um, he said he woke up that morning. He felt like a football supporter again, which he hadn't done for so long. And when when you look at all the great times we had, the joy that football gave us, it was it just felt it felt good to be able to experience that again. Nobody wants to be the person who, you know, chops the guillotine down on Berry Football Club, do they? Nobody wants to be the person responsible for those hundred and thirty five years of history disappearing. But you know, the objective evidence says that well, Steve Dale said he was going to get a team mobilised for September for you know the start of the season. It didn't happen. Well, is it going to happen next year? Uh, if he's still at the club, probably not. No. Uh, after ever very going to raise two and a half million quid, I don't know. Objectively speaking, probably not. But will Steve Dale? You know, however much money they are trying to raise, will a lesser sum be acceptable to the person? who came up with a figure of two and a half million quid. I don't know. It's still all ifs, buts and maybes. And yeah, it's, uh, it's just so complex. And, you know, all this stems from one man's ego saying that very fun, he was going to get very into the championship and another man's inability to provide what the authorities wanted from him. Can, can the situation then still be revived if Steve Dale goes, if a new owner came in? Is, I mean, why is he hanging around? I don't know, but how are you going to get a new owner? You know, if you're talking a seven-figure sum for a football club that has absolutely nothing about it. You know, we don't know about the ownership of the ground, or at least fans haven't been made privy to the situation with the ground. It's just so... It's just such a complex web, which is why David Conn got involved in it. You know, if David Conn's sniffing around your club, you know something's wrong, you know? That's <laughs> the best practice and David Conn being interested in football clubs that aren't well run. 
that's yeah. your three certainties in life. Yeah. Um, well, just say we make it, we make a joke at the office anytime David Con comes into the office because he's based he lives in the north and obviously we're in the south and every time he comes into the office it's, uh, to the gardens office in, in near King's Cross. Uh, we always kind of go, oh no, which football club's in trouble now? Because he's obviously come down to go to company's house to look at some football clubs' yeah. financial records. And it's like, <laughs> oh, he's like the grim reaper of football, David. Uh, bless him, he's a lovely guy, so he's obviously a fantastic journalist. Sorry, carry on, James. No, I, I just, I'm not sure where else I want to go with this yeah, because yeah, very you know, subjects, yeah. it ha- it's, it's still raw. Mm. And as I say, you know, the moment of the expulsion will stay with me for a very long time to come. And a lot of moments of the last 12 months will live with me for the, for the time being a football fan. You know, I don't think, I don't think AFC will totally make the wound heal. That's a very emotive subject. I mean, on a personal level as well, I've, I, I've been in touch with people with forever Berry and um, as I can see their side completely and I can totally see your side and the side of those people who want to get behind Berry AFC. And as I said, your, your thread on it, which you posted quite recently, I think was it a few weeks ago about, why you've got behind Berry AFC, I really do recommend people reading that. Go to James's um, Twitter account and just read it. Um, it's, it's, it's a really fantastic thread on, on all the reasons why you've got behind Berry AFC and, and why it can be a success and why it's so important to, to many fans of, of Berry. But let's move on to something which hopefully should make you feel a lot happier, James. It's your all-time Berry 11. So, you know, as every guest that uh, comes on this podcast asks them to pick an all-time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen play for their club and James has very kindly provided his own team so let's go through your all-time Berry 11 4-4-2 formation Dean Kyle in goal back four Andy Hill Chris Lachetti Paul Butler and Roger Stanislaus in midfield David Lee Nick Dawes Lenny uh, John Ross and Danny Mayer and up front Mark Carter and of course Ryan Lowe. Um, I'll be honest with you, James. I've only heard of two players from that team, which is Dean <laughs> Kiley and Ryan Lowe. Um, but I did do a bit of research on the team. And the, and the player uh, who's got an incredible story uh, is Roger Stanislaus, uh, but not because of what happened to him at Berry. I mean, he spent five years at Berry between 1990 and 1995. He then joined Leighton Orient. Um, are you aware of what happened to him at Leighton Orient? He was on News at 10. Was he really? I'm aware of it. Yeah, he was the only ex-Berry player ever to be mentioned on News at 10. Yeah. You can tell the story. Go ahead. Uh, he got busted for drugs, essentially. He, uh, he failed a drugs test when he was at Leighton Orient, tested positive for cocaine, was it? It was cocaine, yeah. And there's, there's a great line in the piece in When Saturday Comes, the, obviously the famous, brilliant uh, fanzine, magazine, I should say, about the incidents. I'll just read this out. Uh, I think it's written by a Leighton Orient fan. It sounds like it is anyway. I didn't, I didn't see the byline, but it, um, it's a line about yeah, Stanislaus is one year banned from football for testing positive for cocaine when he was at Leighton Orient. So, um, yeah, here's a line. Throughout the whole sorry affair, no one has explained how on earth Stanislaus can have taken a drug to boost performance. For one thing, Roger's performance in that debacle were abysmal, making Stanislaus the most spectacularly ineffective cheat in history, which I think is really funny. Um, but he's in your team. Uh, obviously, then a very good player for, for Barry, Roger Stanislaus. Yeah, yeah Roger Stanislaus uh, joined Barry in the summer of 1990, which is off the back of that summer was where the first cash crisis that I really remember happening. Uh, we spent a fortune on players and Roger was one of them. We signed him from Brentford and Barry's right winger, who you also mentioned in my team then, was David Lee. And the manager, Sam Ellis, said to him, who was the best left back you played against last season? And he said, Roger Stanislaus. So we went out and signed him because we had an open checkbook. We spent £95,000 on him and uh, he was magical. He was, you know, really graceful. And he had, a, he had a lot in his locker. He scored a goal against Tranmere in the FA Cup, that I'll always remember as well, where he floated it over Eric Nixon. And uh, a few years later, 
actually in the season we won the second division championship in 1997. So after he'd been sacked by Leighton Orient, Barry were away at Brentford and it was one of my favourite away days ever. And uh, somebody on the away terrace spotted to our right, Roger Stanislaus was in the stand and wow. he got the greatest <laughs> rendition of Oh Roger, 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 Roger Stanislaus. And he just accompanied it with a massive smile, massive wave. And he made a great day even better. It was great to see him that day. Number 10, uh, Lenny John Rose, I want to give special mention to because in recent years, he's kind of transcended football uh, because in 2018, he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. And the way he's handled it has been nothing short of exemplary. He's, uh, he's appeared on local media, you know, local TV news programmes talking about how just practically he's faced up to the fact he's not going to be around for very long. And it's for that reason, it's the way that he's handled his motor neuron disease and the practicality with which he faces life, uh, which is why he's got in there ahead of my favourite ever player of all time, Tony Rigby. So uh, I loved Lenny to bits. You know, we loved him as a fighter, as a warrior on the pitch, but the way that he's been off the pitch off the back of uh, his motor neuron disease diagnosis has just been absolutely exemplary, as I say. Oh, that's very touching, very uplifting. And uh, yeah, it makes him a, a fantastic choice for your team. Final question then, James. And it's a question I end every episode of this podcast with. Um, it's a tricky one with you, um, given everything that's gone on. So the question normally is, if you could ask one thing from your club in the next five years, what would you ask for? Obviously, that's difficult for you because where Berry are. So I'll leave it open to you. You can, you can ask it in relation to the original Berry, or you can ask it in relation to Berry AFC. But yeah, if, if you could ask for one thing from either of those two clubs during the next five years, what would you ask for? I'd like AFC to push on about bringing or keeping football back in the borough. I think the community engagement is spectacular. I think I'd like, well, we'll have they got the capacity in them to ask people who are anti-AFC to support them? No, they haven't. But I think if they keep on doing the good work that they're doing, then some of the people who are against the AFC can be persuaded into watching them and more of us coming back together. Because they won't get everyone. There are some people who are so vehemently anti-AFC, they will never have anything to do with it. But I think... Together, we can achieve great things. My ultimate desire would be for AFC to do what AFC Wimbledon have done and get back in the league. But I just want a few more of us to be friends rather than uh, the way that things are at the moment because it's, as I say, it's upset me. Yeah, I want more of us to be friends. And I think AFC potentially has the greatest chance of that to happen. Give it a go, you might like it. If you don't, fair enough, but you might. And you might get the same feeling I got at that first game versus Steeton. That's a great answer. Great answer. James Bentley, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. The AFC, the team will make-